This is the People Make Things podcast, where we talk about the lives behind the scenes and in the trenches of the people who make your entertainment. I'm your host, Christopher Natsume, known on the internet as Nine Squirrels. Today we are talking to Jessica Tams, who is the managing director and also the founder of the Casual Connect game organization, which runs the Casual Connect series of game conventions all around the world. We're going to jump right into it with a little introduction from Jessica about who she is, where she came from, and what she did. Take it away, Jessica. I grew up in Utah, went to school in the sciences, and I was a programmer for a couple years in the games industry, made hardcore video games, um, like RPGs and whatnot. Any any we would know? Uh, Dungeon Siege, oh, Gabriel Knight. I didn't know you worked on those. That's awesome. <laughs> Good. Yeah, so I worked at Sierra back in the day, back in the day before they published Half-Life. Dude, that's old school. There. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're very, older than you look. I am very old. So I was at Sierra Online. Um, Roberta Williams was still designing games, uh, you know, to give you an age range there. So... After that, I moved over into the casual game space and uh, worked for called Oberon Media, which was based in Israel. And where, when, where, where were you living when you worked for Oberon? Were you in Seattle for a while, or Seattle? Okay. Yep, I lived in Seattle. And then in the casual space, we didn't really have an event for ourselves, and so we decided a couple of people in the industry that we needed to have a conference for ourselves. And so I had another job full-time, and I organized, I would say, very poorly some events. We got everybody there. Um, you know, the logistics weren't as, as good as they are now. What, can you, can you, for the people who don't know, what, what's the kind of dates for this? When, 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 do, when were the first Casual Connect events? We founded Casual Connect in 2008. Oh, wow. And our first event was in Amsterdam of 2006. I was at that event. I was actually at that event. So I was was there for the inaugural uh, Casual Connect in Amsterdam. Yeah, we thought we'd have about 150 people that would show up. Um, A couple more showed up, as you may remember. It was a little bit crowded. Um, There's not a lot of bigger venues in the cool downtown area in Amsterdam. At I've, that time. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The thing I remember most about that show was that entire big old rickety building had about three toilets in the entire building. <laughs> and they they were some seriously prime real estate. That's that's what I remember from that show. Other than that, it was an amazing show, but I, I'll never forget. Um so yeah, there's that. Yeah, we we just we just crammed ourselves in. I mean, I don't know. Now people would complain about it, but at the time I think we were all just happy to to have a place to meet and you know, since we didn't have any VC money or investment, and I didn't view it as a business at all, I know I was very price conscious. And so we had to make sure that we kind of kept all the costs down. So walk, walk um, so me through. So, I didn't personally go back. So yeah, that's I mean, why. So, so you have so another special. job, and, and you know, everyone kind of got around and said, hey, we need to have this convention. Like, how did you draw the short straw? I mean, why 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 are you the one organizing it and and what you know why 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 did you you, know, you had a you had a career you were doing coding you were, you know you were working with some great games what why because i organized the parties i think <laughs> like to, to put it bluntly um and i didn't think it would be that much work 
So you, when so, when it started, you didn't you didn't really see this as a business. You didn't see this as like no, this is what this I'm going to do not, with myself. Yeah, this was not a business. And and the first year, if you remember the company called Xylem. Yeah, I remember Xylem. They actually co-produced it uh, with us in Amsterdam. So they actually printed the badges. Um, I set up some of the stuff, but then they did a lot of the work. Yeah, Xylem, the Xylem the- actually became Game House uh yeah. Europe and I'm actually working with them now so I know those guys very well they're not Xylem anymore but uh Correct. Yeah, Correct. I think they're yeah, they're in they, Eindhoven now I think. They were always in Eindhoven. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually they're kind of in Barcelona now, but here nor there. Um but they helped, they did some of it, we did some of it. They announced actually their acquisition by Real. Rob Glaser showed up to that first event to make the announcement. Um Rob was always one of our uh, big supporters, and so we always appreciated that over the years. So where and, where did you make the beginning. where did you make the transition from? Hey, this is some kind of cool stuff I do in my spare time. To all right, yeah, this is what I'm doing. So the company I worked for got acquired, um, about a year into the process, and so I thought I'll go and I'll do this for a little bit, get everything stabilized, and then we can hand it off to um, somebody else, like a board or something. And then it just never happened because I realized that in order for this to be successful and for us to have our own place in the world that was in the industry and really understood the industry was going to have to uh, take the lead. And so so I stayed on and have just, I guess, never left. So so we're, we're still talking back in like 2006, 2007, 2008, sort of the, sort of the golden age of the premium downloadable casual games. Yeah, um, and I remember we had fights over um, what would be considered to be included. And oh yeah, I remember that. Remember, mobile wasn't con- necessarily considered to be part of the ecosystem, but I put it into the conference, and people yelled at me. Um, the handheld game consoles, also another thing that. Um, that we put in that people didn't think we should. Well, and I remember Alex St. John getting really mad and I didn't know who he was. There was a, a <laughs> session and, and he started talking, blah, blah, blah. And I may have yelled at him. It was kind of maybe uncalled for, but you know, we are what we include in our industry. And so by including that early on, we were able to get our games and kind of our style of, gameplay onto a lot more platforms well i mean the, the fight continues i mean even even in the very you know even in berlin you know the questions of you know is is vr a casual game well there's vr there you know is uh you know is is uh uh gambling you know and 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 where do we draw the line is is real money gambling casual is you know fake money gambling casual yeah there's, see and this is that whole title thing like yeah. I just don't even care for that conversation. Yeah, I actually, it's funny. A lot of times when I tell people I'm going to go to Casual Connect, they're like, but Chris, you're married. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not a, it's not a dating thing. It's a, it's a totally different thing. Uh, but that, it's funny that the casual game moniker still sticks to it. But it's very difficult at this point to say, you know, this is what a casual game is or what isn't. It's very, yeah. so. But I want to, I want to go back to 2007, 2008, the early days. One of the things I like to talk about in this podcast is how people start businesses and how they, and, and, you know, I, I will say of all the people I know in the industry, you guys are, you know, some of the most bootstrappy, frugal people, uh, working in it. You do more with less 
than most people I know. Can you give us some some sort of tips or some strategies? What did you do in the early days to make this thing happen? Because I mean, the, the events were great events. They looked like they they looked like a lot of money got spent, and I know for a fact a lot of money didn't get spent. So how how did that happen? What was your what was your secret? So one of the reasons that we started was I saw the marketing budgets. You know, we had discussed it. In, in our companies and I just thought it was a little excessive um, and I know that if a company spends a million dollars on a booth that's a million dollars that can't go to a developer yeah so for me personally I I view money as a tool and when I even personally with my own money I don't think of something as oh can I afford that so some people might say oh you know if you didn't throw such great parties, you could have a Lamborghini, right? Mm -hmm. But for me, I think, oh, nope, the party's more important. And I don't think of things as, oh, can I afford this? I think of them as, where's the best place to spend the money? And so you might say, oh, do I want a handbag, a new handbag each year, let's say? Mm -hmm. And I don't have a handbag, but we're going to pretend. I've never so, seen you carry a handbag for the record, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have one. <laughs> Um, I have one of our free backpacks that we give to our speakers. Oh, fair enough. Uh, so, you know, that might cost $1,000 a year, right? And so do I want that over the course of my lifetime? But if I don't buy a new handbag each year, I could spend that $1,000. And then, you know, by the time I'm 50, I could have $50,000 to buy something else. And I, in my mind, I think, is that handbag worth it? Or is this potential to take this um, – these resources and put them somewhere else and so that's why we're um, a bit frugal and we are frugal and so we think about everything in our show what is the best place to spend money not necessarily can we afford it but where is the best place and so you'll see at our show our stages aren't the most beautiful things that you've ever seen in the entire world yeah, but nobody but, cares. I mean, the, if the content is good, I mean, and, and, and I yeah. think that's the key when you when you go to the Casual Connect events. And, you know, I, I do all the conferences and I, I contrast and compare. And, and I will agree, sometimes the, the Casual Connect events seem a little bit more... Uh, uh, scrappy. Do, yeah, scrappy is probably a good word. But the content is there. And I think the people who are who are actually there and actually looking for, you know, are these speakers worth hearing? Are the people that I want to talk to at this show... Most of that stuff doesn't actually cost a lot of money, right? Nope. And I would rather have, for example, all of our sessions recorded than have a nice stage and yeah. give our sessions away for free. So we don't charge anybody for our sessions because I think that in order for us to have a stable, um, broad games industry, we need to have education available to everybody, no matter where they are, no matter if their mom and dad have lots of money, no matter if their government – gives them grants, they all, every single one of them, as long as they can access YouTube, um, are able to listen to all of the lectures for free. And so for me, I say, well, we could either charge for the lectures or we can just not do a stage, a nice stage, and then we can give them away for free. So that's where we make our decision. No, and, it, and it's been um, great. I know, I know, I know I've, I've also obviously spoken at a number of Casual Connects, and there's been many times where I've been like, oh, you know, this thing, this question you're asking me, I did a whole lecture on this. Here's a link, bam. And I, I've done, you know, or I, I saw somebody else give a lecture on this, you know, oh, Juan talked about this in, in Paris. You should, you should, you know, you should look at this, boom. 
and and having access to 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 being able to look at that content is absolutely huge. I, I was talking to some. It may have been it may have been Carl actually. Uh, I was talking to somebody who was saying that uh, you know one of the studios, one of the first things they do with brand new employees is they've actually got a playlist of a whole bunch of lectures from Casual Connect, and they say you know welcome to the studio. Here's your first couple days. Go watch these you know 25 videos because this is all content that you need to know. And, and having that out there and free in the domain, it's, it's been huge for the industry. It's been a huge positive for the industry, I think. Yep. So when we went into Southeast Asia, we started going around, did tour, was doing some biz dev, and we'd come into a, a city or country, and the person, the devs would say, oh, yeah, we know you. And we're like, well, how do you know us? You know, we, we only have a handful of people from India coming to Casual Connect each year. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, everybody knows you. Because we watch your videos, and so they'll they'll actually download them. Back in the day, mm-hmm. right before bandwidth was a little cheaper, they download the videos, put them on their hard drive at work, and then everybody in the studio could just watch them, you know, fast coming mm-hmm. in. So, so that's something that uh, is good. Of course, you know, the parties, um, video recording, find that very important. And then our indie prize program uh, is a scholarship program. So the developers there are selected based on uh, qualifications. They're not paid, so that you know we can keep the quality high, and we pay for their ticket, we pay for their lodging at the show, we pay for their food, you know, through the they get breakfast at the um, at the hostel that we put them up in, they get lunch at the show, and then you know obviously they have food and drink at the parties, and so. And that's something that I really find important as well because there's developers that come from areas that it's it's cost prohibitive for them to come to an event. And so by doing this, we enable people from all over the world. All they have to do is get themselves there. Um, and plane tickets are pretty cheap. Um, it's typically the lodging and the and you know the costs associated with the conference that are. Uh, the you know the most expensive portion. Yeah, if you if you and compare so, that back against you know if I go to GDC, I mean the, a ticket to GDC now is I, I forget how much it is, but it's absurd. Um, yeah, they're over a thousand dollars. Yeah, or yeah. you know uh, you know another I, I don't want to rag on other events, but that you know there there some of the other events can be quite prohibitively expensive, and, and it's amazing that you guys are doing so much to help with the uh, you know where they're staying as well because. God, I know when when I go to San Francisco and and just a hotel for a for a four day conference that that's real money um, if you're paying all that out of your pocket. So so that's Actually, our, huge. Our hotel rates are, as a note, um, we don't take any cost up on those hotels, so mm-hmm. they were pretty close. Like our San Francisco hotel rates were in the two hundreds. So which is good for San maybe, Francisco. It's in, in the yeah, rest of the maybe, world, it's still abusive, but in San Francisco, bit, it's pretty but, good. But I think maybe some people confuse the rates. You know, when we go places, I think San Francisco, because they go there at other times when the hotel rates are a little more expensive, where the conference organizer will pass on some of that um, cost. Like they'll get a kickback from the, like for every hotel you book. Um, But we typically don't do that. Sometimes we actually give a little bit of kick in to help people with the conference rates. So So we're we're talking a lot about money. I want to talk seriously about money for a minute. So... You guys have built this thing entirely bootstrapped. And to my understanding, you guys don't have any actual investors. There's no there's no VC investment or anything in the in the conference. You correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, nope, it's it's I, it's still totally basically owned by you, right? Yeah. yeah, I just I self funded it for a long time. So tell me about that process. Tell me about 
because I, you know, I self-funded my company. There's no investors in Booms App, and it was a it was a hard experience. There was a lot of stress involved in in you know bootstrapping everything. Tell me a little bit about that. What if, what what tips could you give to other people who are trying to build a business and trying to build it out of revenue instead of investment? So I I self-funded it. I had money um, saved, and I've always been frugal. But I think that some people. You have to decide if you really want to be somebody who's going to bootstrap because, you know, I had a house. I moved into my basement. I sold my car. And I got renters upstairs. And I don't think most people are willing to do that. No, so. it's, it's not it's not the sexy face of entrepreneurship <laughs> that everybody wants, you know. Nope. No, I, so you're like, okay. So I remember the early days of Casual Connect um, walking – be awful walking big boxes like 40 pound boxes to the post office to mail to amsterdam with our supplies Mm -hmm. you know because you'd fly over there and you can't take all the supplies with you in your suitcase right you have to have some there so uh, you know like you make a couple trips to the post office so you know you're walking a mile or two with this big box (laughs) and it's kind of yeah it's kind of not sexy but you know like it's fine Oh, I, I yeah, I have, I have a similar story. I always tell people, you know, the first year that we started BoomZap, I went down to E3 actually to try to to try to score some development uh, deals, and I couldn't afford a hotel. I actually slept in the back of my station wagon in the parking lot in downtown LA. That was actually how I how I made it through my first E3. And, and nobody wants that, you know. When when you tell people the entrepreneurship story, they're always like, "Oh, I went to these VC parties, and you know, we all had razor scooters and air on chairs." And the the actual face of entrepreneurship is quite different. Yep. And, you know, some people want to take VC, and that's fine. Like, it's just really up to each individual person. I'd rather have the flexibility because, let's be honest, if we had VC, we would have already been sold. We wouldn't have IndiePrize because, you know, IndiePrize at times, sometimes, maybe we spend a little bit too much money on IndiePrize, maybe. And so at the end of the year, we're like, oh, crap. We just, you know, we just lost money this year or we barely broke even. And and if we had investors, they would say, well, you know, there's 100 people there. You're feeding them catered food, which is really expensive. And they're young, so they drink a ton of alcohol at the parties. Yeah, they do. And so, you know, like they're like, well, if you didn't have these indies here, just cut them out completely, not even monetizing them, right? But just the cost that goes out for that program um, over four shows them, their alcohol, their food, um, their hostel rooms, it kind of adds up and, and it's something that no investor in their right mind would put up with. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot right. of that that I see, not just in, in you know, your organization, but in other organizations where people, you know, who who have bootstrapped up, there's a certain freedom of longevity that you get where, you know, if you have a bad year and you're VC funded, you got to explain that to somebody and you got to come up with a, you know, a, an action plan to get back to the, you know, place they want to be. But if it's yours and you don't have those investors, you can say, "No, no, this is this is part of the plan. This is, you know, we're going to we're going to fight our way through this." That's a yeah, very difficult I'm, discussion to have with investors. And I'm frugal and, you know, like I don't have a huge house and I don't have a fancy car and I don't have handbags. So And, and you live in Utah, I mean, which is a pretty pretty, you know, compared to Seattle or San Francisco, uh It's pretty cheap. Yeah. Although it is getting more expensive. Uh Utah has I think one of the lowest unemployment rates. Really? I don't know. I don't know if it's the lowest, but it's one of the lowest. It's about 
here in Utah. Um, it's very hard to find jobs, even, you know, if you don't even have a, a college education and you want a job, you can actually find one here that pays pretty well, you know, as far as cost of living goes, mm-hmm. because, you know, it's, it's nice. And we live, um, Utah has the largest um, percentage of public lands. And so we are just surrounded by public lands. There's tons of recreational opportunities. The lifestyle in Utah is superior to uh, anywhere else that I've lived. So my, my farm, we live on a farm, um, borders directly public land. So we're bordered on two sides with public land. So it's, it's something that you just can't get really anywhere else. Yeah, I, I, I did my two years in Salt Lake, which is a lot more, it's not up in the farm where you are, but I can remember the, it, the quality of life even in Salt Lake was, was amazing. You know, we used to go up into the Wasatch Mountains for lunch and, and just sit at yep. a, a picnic table and, and, you know, in the mountains with squirrels and deer and stuff. It was, uh, it was yep. a very different world up there than living in San Francisco or New York or somewhere like that. It's true. And we think of Salt Lake as being not desirable <laughs> in comparison because our our uh, our access into the public lands here where I live, up, I, we're almost in Idaho, um, is, is a lot better than in Salt Lake. And, and it's one of the, you know, it's actually, you know, I feel a, a big kinship with the Casual Connect organization because we're both virtual businesses, right? Um, yeah. You know, there's there's people, and, and, and people always are very impressed with the way we run our virtual business. But I think most people are not aware how much uh, Casual Connect is a virtual business. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that and how you, how you run a, a multinational company like Casual Connect out of a farm near the Idaho border? How, do, how does that work? So we have really good employees that are all self-sufficient, and that's pretty much it. I mean, where where so are they? Where, where are your folks? Uh, we have, let's see, the Philippines and Vietnam and Taiwan and Ukraine and Utah and Arizona. Yeah, that's pretty diverse. <laughs> and if I miss somebody, I feel bad. <laughs> but... <laughs> But pretty much there's people who can work from home and stay on task and there's people who can't work from home and there's, you know, some people like the office and some people want the flexibility of working from home. And so for for stay-at-home moms or just for moms in general, working from home is, is really something that is appealing um, because – you know, you need to go to your kid's school or you need to do this or you need to do that or, you know, your kid's sick or something happens. Um, and even just not having to commute in saves a lot of time. And so for for us, the benefits of being virtual, just in the fact that, you know, for families, it's a huge advantage. Um, and then for the people that are maybe don't have kids but, you know, live outside of the U.S., um, working for, you know, being a contractor for an American company is has its benefits and they can travel and so I mean what are I the think, what are I the what are the they sort of like systems it. that you use to to manage these people I mean what how do you how do you how do you communicate uh, we use Skype a lot um, and Facebook Messenger you know we're we're big on Skype um, I, and I love Facebook how much Messenger. business actually gets done on people would be shocked to know how much game business gets done on Facebook Yes, and I mean, Facebook Messenger has a really nice mobile app 
that doesn't make your phone crash and it doesn't use a lot of resources. And so we actually will use both. So, so you know, sometimes I'll get um, a Skype from somebody and then they'll send it in Facebook if I'm not if I don't happen to be at my computer. Yeah, Skype isn't as reliable on your phone. Yeah, we um, we should times. have a talk later. Actually, our studio has moved a lot of our process to Discord, which is actually a, a service that was designed for uh, gamers chatting. And we've actually, we've actually had, I, later offline, I'll have this conversation with you. We, we've had a lot of luck with that. And one of the big things is, um, like you, we deal with a lot of people with developing world internet. And, mm-hmm. you know, with Skype, there's always that, that issue where like, okay, we've got five people in the call and, ah, oh, damn, you know, Patricia just, yep. you know, and someone, someone call Patricia, right? And, and because it's, yep. because it's that system where you have to actually reach out to them and bring them into the conversation, it's kind of a constant annoyance. Moving to Discord, the way Discord works is they actually opt into the conversations. So when somebody drops from the conversation, it's not your responsibility to go drag them back into it again. They actually have the responsibility to check into the conversation again. And so you can just sort of let it happen naturally. And that's been transformational for us, actually. That's been a huge change. You can do that. Because you have like, we have our ch- different chat rooms. Mm-hmm. We call them chat rooms. So we have like our general chat room. And then each team has their own chat room. And then each team for the content side has a, a event specific chat. Yeah. And so we do our calls through that existing chat system. And yeah. So Skype, Skype kind of does it. Uh, Discord actually does this better. And and that's for, for yeah. we, we actually have a very similar organization where, you know, we have each one of our projects has its own group. We also have groups based on discipline. So we have like an artist group or a designer group. And so everyone mm-hmm. kind of belongs to, you know, I'm in the designer group and I'm in, you know, game A group as a designer. And we can have chats that way and we have text chats that way and we have voice chats that way. It's actually a very, it's a very sweet way to work. Um, I should, we should write. So, so one thing though about Skype that's different, we have tried these others, mm-hmm. is that we do a lot of work with our advisors and speakers mm-hmm. and sponsors and whatnot. And Skype has a great install base. That's that is the that is the real upside of Skype so, is if you're dealing with yeah. a lot of external clients you can pretty well assume yeah they've got a copy of Skype and we can probably get yeah. them in so, that's that's so most of the time our our team I would say there are some people on our team that work ninety percent externally ten percent internally yeah so our personal like internal process is not it's more like we are just I don't know account managers I don't know like yeah. at a bigger company yeah, yeah. it's that's a little bit closer to to reality, but in general, everybody has their has their little area that they work on, and I don't really care how they do it, just as long as the work gets done, because we are we're all about um, the process, and or sorry, all about the results. Because if you think about the conference, we have zero room for slipping date. Yeah. So people are going to show up at let's say the pre-funk party, and they're going to show up at. Five o'clock. And if you're not ready, and you're not ready. If you are five minutes late, like we have no, no flexibility in that. And so, and so we can't say, oh, you did everything right, but it didn't work out. That's okay. Cause it's really not okay. Like if you don't have those badges there, people get really, really, really pissed off. And so, so for us, it's more about everybody has their section that they work on and they make sure that everything in that section mm-hmm. is correct. And it's their responsibility to make sure that section is done. And if they need help, then they need to ask for help. And then if they don't need help, then they can just, they'll just get it done. And we just trust that they do that. And so if we do have somebody that has a hard time, something, and they can't reliably deliver, 
then, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't work out. So that's that's probably so it, the most key thing when people ask me how a virtual business works is that that trust word. You have to have people in the studio that you can say, I need this thing done. And you can trust that either they're going to go do it or if they can't do it, they're going to come back to you and tell you why they can't do it in a reasonable amount of time. You know, you, you have to be able to have that trust that somebody is going to own things. Much more than in a, in a studio where, you know, you've got people and you can kind of come and look over their shoulder and what are you doing today, Bob? But in a virtual yeah, studio, don't have, you, you don't have that. You can't do that. Yeah, we don't have uh, project managers and we're pretty flat. So one of the things that's really hard when people come in, in initially, if they've been in an environment with a lot of structure and a lot of people just telling them what to do and then they were kind of robot Mm-hmm. robot people right like they get direction and then they they just do what they were told um sometimes it's really hard for them to say okay this is where i this is what i need to do and how do i get there and not have somebody telling them where to go every step of the way and so i would say that that's probably the the hardest part for people is the flat structure yeah and, we, and we've so, also had problems with people who you know they, they've always been in structures where if they ask questions they got slapped down you know why don't you know this how come you don't know this already and and getting you know because part of that trust is not just trust that they're going to go away and do it but it's the trust that if they don't know how to do it they're gonna they're gonna, gonna be ask. you know their, their their ego is big enough that they can not have it shattered by saying you asked me to do this thing and i don't know how you know, yeah. they can get past that and, and ask those important questions. And that's a level of trust, too. Yeah, we actually had a, a, a couple of years ago, somebody come in um, and they were doing some contract work for us. And and I was thinking they'd be able to run like their little section, just like with everybody else. And we had an intern who was there on the team and they hadn't been there very long. But, you know, they ask questions if they don't know what they're doing. And, you know, generally get stuff done, but nonetheless intern. Right? Mm-hmm. And this person came in and they wouldn't ask in general, like they'd get blocked and then they wouldn't be able to work. Mm-hmm. Right. And they were so afraid to ask anybody. So they started asking the intern what to do. <laughs> and I was like, you know, can't really give this person this project and ha- and have them manage, you know, this intern that we had Mm -hmm. because the intern is managing them (laughs) and and the reason you know the reason why is obviously because you know in a normal structure if you're the boss then you don't want to you know not look like you you, like you don't know what you're doing but uh but they had no idea that they were just you know asking the intern because we're so flat so so we actually promoted the intern well that worked out well then (laughs) yep and and uh, that person got that this other person's job well, that they were gonna that we were kind of trying them out for so you know worked out okay so I want to I want to switch gears a little bit one of the things that that I've always been you know you go I go to a lot of conventions and and the thing that that for me has always struck me kind of different about the Casual Connect series of conventions is there's a very sort of family atmosphere. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, it, it, some of the other conventions you go to, there, there's always this feeling of like, oh, I can't talk to that person because they're really important. And when, when you're at Casual Connect, there's always that feeling like if they're here, I could talk to them. Right. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. wondering how do you guys, what, 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 how did that happen? I, I don't know how that atmosphere got created. What did, was that? Was that something you planned on or is that just, is that just there? It's, I think it's just there. Um, I don't, as I said, have any, I'm not hung up on titles or 
helper, I guess, for me personally. And so if there's somebody at the show, I'd, I'd walk up to him and talk to him. Yeah. You know, like I, I personally would have no qualms with that. And so my staff doesn't have qualms with that. And I think it just, you know, perpetuates down. But it, but it's fascinating so they, to me because a lot a lot of the people who you're bringing into the show, these are big corporations. These are these are King.com. This is real networks. These are these are big, huge, you know, multi-million dollar corp in some cases multi-billion yeah. dollar corporations. How do you interact with that level of guys in suits and still maintain the sort of happy family atmosphere that you guys have? Those guys are normal, too. I mean, just because they're smart enough to run a big company doesn't mean they're not normal. Like, okay, so you mentioned real. Rob is a totally normal guy, you know. He's well-read. He's articulate. He has lots of opinions outside of business. Like, he's a good conversationalist. So it sounds to me like that you're you're, you're, you're feeling that titles don't matter doesn't just mean you guys. It it extends out to pretty much the whole world. You just don't really care about anybody's titles. (laughs) No, not really. So, like, like let's say that, you know, a year ago, I'm going to use a year ago example, like, Obama shows up. Like, I would expect my team to go and just talk to him. Like, so, he's just a person. Wait, did, did Obama actually show up at a casual connect? No, I said if. Okay, all right, all right. Actually, we had the ambassador of Tunisia show up. Well, that's in cool. Berlin, that's... And Leah talked to him. Gave them, <laughs> they had a conversation. And it's okay. You know, she can do that. But I think in general, one of the things that we have done at Casual Connect is we don't do a lot of uh, external marketing. Mm-hmm. And all of our developers are pre-vetted. So we had 470 applications for IndiePrize this year. We let in about 100 of them. So everybody who's there is vetted in some way. We don't have general student tickets just for anybody off the street. Everybody has to have a purpose in being there. Mm-hmm. So either they're volunteers and then, you know, they have to they have to work for it or they're indies. So the, the indie prize participants, so they qualify for it or they're speakers. So hopefully they're smart because we're asking them to speak or they're attendees and they have a, you know, a ticket price that they have to go through. So we expect everybody at the show to have at least some base level of um interest. Yeah, I'm actually, you know, as as you know, I'm putting together an article right now about how to be sort of more successful at conventions. And one of the things I bring up is one of the 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 thing that nobody tells you, the the secret value of being a speaker is you get invited to the speaker dinner. And, you know, there's actual, you know, if you get invited to a speaker dinner and you don't show up, you're, you're just like the biggest idiot in the world, because this is the most vetted group of people that matter at the show, right? I mean, Every everyone in the room in a speaker dinner is somebody who has something of value to say, right? And yes. and and to, other, otherwise, why would they be speaking, right? So so yep. you know you definitely want to show you know one of the big values of being a speaker at a convention is to go to the speaker only event, which is by definition one of the best VIP events at the show, and you, and you get just this wonderful chance to not only talk to these people but also. They know that you've been pre-vetted, and they're like, "Okay, this guy is not going to waste my time because he, he's got to be here for a reason too, right?" And so it, it, yeah. it creates we, this really nice sort of happy atmosphere where you can talk to people who you might not get a chance to talk to in some other format. It's true, and we try to not um, give people speaking slots that you know are just friends, if if that makes sense. Like yeah. everybody really has a purpose, and and that's a little bit hard because, of course, some people. Um, want to be able to charm their way into a speaking slot and you know they try but in general like 
we would have so many speakers from like a tools and services perspective <laughs> that we could fill up, you know, 10 days from the people that, you know, want to speak. So we really try and put content creators, people who are controlling where the money goes. So our investment track is pretty heavily attended. And then we make sure that the people that are our tools and services speakers are the ones that are actually already having success in the industry. And so we typically won't take somebody who's attempting to break into the tools and services side. Mm -hmm. They pretty much already have to have super successful product Mm -hmm. out there um, that where they're already helping people and we're seeing people be helped by their product. So, so we're pretty, we're pretty picky on the speaker side and partially it's going to sound awful, but I go to the speaker dinner too, and my staff goes to the speaker dinner. And we found that having a speaker who isn't quite as high quality as we had hoped is personally painful because we might end up sitting next to them. <laughs> and so, well, that's you know, we've had, it's totally honest. So, you know, we've had some speakers sometimes, and I'm like, you guys, you know, nobody wants to sit next to them, and I had to sit next to them. And I'm really pissed off at whoever invited them to speak. <laughs> so, you know, they need to be interesting. They need to have something. They need to be more than just like a sales pitch, right? Yeah. So I, that's that was really awful. We will also actually, if we have an attendee that is not um, well-behaved, we remove them from our marketing lists and whatnot. So mm-hmm. um, we try to control it that way. So, so all right. I want I want to switch gears just a little bit. So, obviously, you know, you you've been in the industry a really long time, both as a developer and now as somebody who runs conventions, uh, and you've seen all these success stories, and, and and especially you've seen these these sort of rise rising success stories in the casual game industry. Companies like Big Fish or King. I mean, Big Fish didn't exist in two thousand and three, and now it's you know a multi billion dollar company. Um, yeah, they didn't even sponsor our first year. They didn't, they didn't, I thought they sponsored Amsterdam. I thought they were, mm. oh, okay. Nope, um, nope, they weren't there. See, they weren't even, like, they weren't even around, right? Like, this was before the Wii. It was before the iPhone. Yeah, yeah, this we was, were on this feature phones. Er, early days. So, so you've seen these successes. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, from, from your sort of viewpoint of looking outside into all of these successes, can you say looking at, you know, the big fishes and the reels and the kings and the, the, the supercells of the world, is there a common thread that, that you see where you're like, you know what, the reason these guys are all successful is blah. Like, do you have a do you have a viewpoint on that? Hmm. So every single one of those companies that you mentioned, their founders are really smart. The founders aren't political. The founders all work very hard. And I think that that's probably the the commonality there. And, and, so, and actually, all of those founders were people who intimately understood their product and actually could get their hands dirty and build product. I mean, Paul Thalen yes. from Big Fish was a programmer. He built some of the first games that Big Fish yep. shipped, right? Um, and I would say that, like, if I go back and I look, you know, at the successful companies, um, we would ask them to speak before they were successful. So it's how did mostly, so so okay that's an that's an interesting point. How at that point before they were successful did you know this is a company we need to have talking? It was more that person. So like Supercell spoke in Hamburg for example in 2013 right before they um he launched uh 
supercell mm-hmm. and and I remember him speaking and I always thought that he was really smart and and somebody who I would work for maybe that's even a better a better gut feeling right like mm-hmm. I would go and work for Paul or Ricardo mm-hmm. or the, no or even Rob right um, and that's something or actually Robert Akul from Playtica mm-hmm. I remember when he started that company that's an incredibly successful like, oh. company yeah yeah, I was like, you know, that'd be so cool to work with Robert. Maybe if we go out of business, I'll go work with Robert. And so, of so I want to dig deeper into but... that. So, all right, so, so the guy who finds founds uh, Playtica, you're, you're saying, okay, this is a guy before Playtica was anything to know anything about. You thought that's a guy I'd like to work with. What what was it about him yeah. other than just being really smart? I mean, because the industry's full of smart people, and I wouldn't work with half of them, right? I, there's a lot of smart people. I'd be like, dude, I'm you're real smart, but I'm not working with you. What was it about these guys that made you think like that's a guy I'd want to work with? What how what what set? Because I think you've got very good radar for success. What is it? What is it tuned to? I think that they are all open to opinions that are different from their own, mm-hmm. and they'll change their minds. And I think that's probably the common feature there. As in, if you went to them and they said, you know, I really want to, I really want to do this. This is my idea. This is going to be amazing. Let's start a company this way. And you came to them and you said, you know, I, I don't think so. I think you should do something else. I think this little bit right here is wrong. They would listen to you. Mm. Right. They would think about it. They might not take your advice, of course. Right. They don't take everybody's advice, but they definitely think about it. And I would never, ever fear telling them my honest opinion about something. That's a that's a great point, because I can tell you some of the people that I run into in the industry, when you when they want to tell you about their idea, they're not actually interested in your opinion. They just want to sell you their idea. Right. Yes. And you and you get this sales pitch for the idea, and you say, well, you know, have you thought about this? Oh no, no, that's not important. And they just kind of bowl right over what you have to say about it, and you you feel like well, that's not gonna that's not gonna work. You know, if if this guy mm-hmm. runs into problems, he's not gonna be able to to adjust and pivot and 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 pivot. Yeah. I mean, think King dot com. They changed their business model drastically. Oh yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, all, all of these companies that we're talking about, Big Fish Games had had you know three or four major pivots in their business model. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And and you know the real, I mean, real is a story of you know radical changes in what they were going to do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, you could you could write a whole book about all the the strategy changes from from that company. Uh, not, yeah. not all of them good, but you know when it wasn't good, they they usually got out of it relatively quickly. So yeah. That's that's probably a good point. And I would say none of them are discriminatory. So a, a thing that that we see, you know, to go on the negative side, mm-hmm. I guess, is you'll see certain founders or certain people, I guess, in the industry, and they seek out people just like themselves. It's absolutely true. Or, yep, and they're there to party and hang out with their friends and not necessarily to do business. And so I think that's that's a huge distinction between uh, the successful entrepreneurs and those who aren't. And it's fine. Like big companies, they all need, you know, that person that's going to go out and party and meet with people. And well, I mean, people, people have fun. And, and uh, you know, I go to the, I go to some of the parties. I drink at conventions. I, I have a good time, but at, at heart, I'm there to do business. You know, I'm, I'm there to meet people and talk to people and share ideas. And, the, and I think you're right. The, the, 
the defining characteristic of the people who I end up really respecting in the industry and the, and the ones that I see be very successful is exactly that. They're, they're, they're there to listen. They're there to think seriously about what other people have to say about their ideas and then go home and act on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the people, and I, I always, I always, you know, praise him because he's one of my favorite people in the industry, Derek Morton, who runs Flowplay, mm-hmm. uh, probably yeah. one of the smartest people in the industry, runs a very successful company. And, and one of the defining characteristics of talking to him is when you've kind of explained what you want to do, he's always got some questions and you always, you always hate his questions because they're pointed. Oh shit. I hadn't thought about that questions. And that's what you want, right? That's, that's the, that's the actual feedback you want. You want a guy who really listened to what you had to say, really thought about it and then has really pointed questions and, and I've I've had conversations with him where I've I've kind of done the same thing and and I felt like he listened you know and, and sometimes my input was wrong but but he listened to my input and gave reasonable responses to it and I think that kind of interaction with somebody maybe that's the maybe that's the hallmark of a creative individual that's going to be successful. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask uh, I want to ask a question uh, sort of uh, getting off the, the 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 convention and all that. I want to know a little bit about how you work. Uh, you know, I know that you have, you know, you're talking about being a working mother and having a family and, and you know, working at home. And I know a lot of people who, who listen to this, they have a similar situation. What what do you do? I mean, you get a lot done. What do you do to get all of that done and be a successful mother and, uh, you know, have a social life? And how do you how do you make all that work? Um, I have no social life. <laughs> I don't watch TV. But this is one of those things where you're like, okay, I want to be an entrepreneur. And I'm like, okay, well, go get yourself a renter in your house and move into your basement, your studio basement. You know, it's kind of not – you can't do too many things at once Mm -hmm. and do them well. And so you you pretty much just have to – cut out things so what what have you really cut out important. what is what is, so you don't you don't i mean what how much time does does jessica have for jessica in her life i don't know not much <laughs> and, and so how do you how do you make that work Although you, you never do, you never get you never like get to a saturday and just be like god damn it why am i doing this to myself that and that never happens to you no not really but i do now at this very moment I read the New York Times, CNN, and a certain Twitter account every day. Oh, wait, wait. I got to know what the certain I've, Twitter account is. You got to you got to live know what it is, right? Because for me, we run an international business. Mm-hmm. And right now, or an international business that is very heavily dependent on the politics inside of certain countries, mm-hmm. um, on the visas. So the relations between countries, for example, um, anything that happens – with Russia and the CIS region, since we have an event um, in that region, very important. You know, which countries are stable, which countries are going to have visas, what's going to be happening. And so I like to keep up on that. Um, and so I would say that's kind of like more of a personal because we could I could read a little less about it, I think. <laughs> so, you know, I've, um, I, the, but- I, I tell you, the last year has been really hard for me. And I've, I've had to kind of pull back away from it because I, I had to ask myself, all right, you've gotten yourself all worked up about this. Are you going to do anything about it? Like, you know, at, at some point you have to say, like, unless you're going to act on this, 
You know, and I think it's maybe a little different for you because you are directly impacted by some of these these policies, and you have to say, okay, well, we need to make plans. But yes, so we decided, for example, um, to uh, we we rotate our show every year. Yeah. And so, for example, in our Eastern Europe um, Nina show, that's you know kind of on the the eastern side of Europe, mm-hmm. we decided. Uh, we were debating, like, should we really rotate out of um, Tel Aviv or should we just kind of keep it there for a little while and wait to see what happens up in the CIS regions, the, the countries that are uh, bordering Russia right mm-hmm. now. Um, but we decided that we needed to go up and, and actually hit Kiev again, uh, partially because a lot of the ability of people in these regions to be able to do business with people outside of outside of their kind of insular world right now be- mainly because, you know, they've had a currency devaluation, uh, visas are becoming difficult to get again. And for a while, you know, about three, four years ago, there was talk about Russia having open visa into the Schengen area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not going to happen. And the ruble was high, right? So, So there was a moment, you know, three years ago when the fighting kind of broke out in Ukraine where we thought that we weren't going to need to actually have an event in this region. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the locals actually uh, need this. So, you know, some of the reports that are coming back from, from uh, studio heads in, in the region, you know, with regard to how people are um, their ability to do business with the West is uh, disintegrating a little bit. They're becoming a little more insular. So we're going to go back into Kiev and we decided that we can go back in there because, you know, because of the current president's, current political position in the region. I don't think that a war is going to break out. I don't think that it's going to get worse, shall we say. I think it's going to stay, and it's going to stay safe, and we can go in and we can do this. Um, I certainly hope you're right in that. Uh, But I also agree that this is – you know, with the the industry is a multinational, or it's, it's an international industry. We have we have game developers in almost every nation in the world. And yep. and it's it's been interesting to see how you know this this sort of change in the way the world operates and talks to itself has has really affected our industry. It's it's been a huge and it, and it's going to continue. Yeah, and I think in some ways I feel that we in the games industry are a little bit insular uh, from it. Although we've we've had some trouble with visas from certain countries even before mm-hmm. in the last year. Um, I'm not certain that the visa. The visa changes for our group is actually changing that much. Mm-hmm. We saw um, it was actually we didn't have any visa troubles for Germany. We had visa troubles into Amsterdam. One of our Indie Prize winners was actually um, denied their visa to come into Amsterdam last year. And so ironically, even though I know there's a lot of talk of visas this year, sorry, yeah, this year, last year, we actually had a little bit more trouble. Um, and then local politics in Amsterdam in 2008. Also, we had some trouble with visas then. Um, but it's just, I mean, it's it's how it is. And we try to have the different events um, overlap with each other so that we can get people in. So, for example, um, the event in Singapore is very easy for Iranians to come to. Um, it's one of the smaller events, so it's mm-hmm. not as interesting. Um, they could could also come into Germany. You know, now it's a little bit more difficult, um, but we try to try to have that. Developers in North Korea can also go down into Singapore 
Um, I, Singapore that, is very open that, that I, way. I did not know North Koreans could make it into Singapore. Yep. It's news to me. Yeah, they have a um, they have an embassy there. Are, are there and game so, companies in North Korea? Is that a thing? There are game companies in North Korea. Um, they are so you've actually probably seen games that have assets that were created in North Korea. Um, and you just don't know huh. because they're created there and then they're pushed through China. I find, so I find that easy to believe. That's, that's probably, that's probably true. Yeah. I mean, that border, there's, there's towns in North Korea that are very close to China. And just because they're closed off with their government doesn't mean that they don't have people there that are making content. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need, we, you know, now I think it's, it's easier for people to realize this is that, you have a country and they have people there and we're, you know, genetically the same, mm-hmm. right? Like the people from South Korea, North Korea are genetically very similar. Um, it's, it's naive to think that the people in North Korea can't make video games. Oh, no, no. I mean, because, I, I, I certainly, I, right? I would, I would never say in a million years that anyone on earth genetically yeah. couldn't make video yeah. games. But, but and whether so, or not there was so, a distribution network or, or the ability for yeah. people to go in and do business with North Koreans, that seems that would be a lot of frictions on that business. But, but China's able to do it. Yeah. You know, it's digital. They can push them over. But it's something that, that like we, I think as just in general, as humans need to be careful about the fact that you can't really control where you're born and yeah. your leader may be doing something that you don't agree with and they may be controlling things, but it doesn't mean that, um, that we shouldn't at least try to reach out uh, to those people. And so one of the other places that, um, where we're rotating, uh, we're going to go into Hong Kong mm-hmm. in 2018. Um, and so obviously with, with Trump's, uh, discussions with Taiwan. Um, that was a little bit concerning if we should actually go there. Mm-hmm. Um, we've considered going into Taiwan as a stop as well. Um, we decided that maybe we didn't want to do that. So yes, reading CNN, we're going to Hong Kong, not Taiwan this next year. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of stress, but I, I, I think you make a really interesting point that, you know, you hear a lot of talk and, you know, I, I live in Japan and you hear a lot of very anti North Korea talk in Japan. And sometimes you have to pull yourself away from it a little bit and say, yeah, I may not be cool with what the government's up to, but the, the people, you know, they're not, especially in a place like North Korea, they, they didn't even choose that government. They weren't, they weren't invited to that discussion, mm-hmm. you know, and so yeah. in, in, in and those kind of situations. Forget- you know, 50 years ago, where was Japan in the States? Like, yeah. would you, as an American citizen, be living in Japan? Oh, no. I mean, that's no. that's one of the one of the Maybe. interesting things. I mean, it, it, on either side, 50 or actually, if you go 60 years ago, my marriage would have been illegal in both America, many states in America and in Japan. Um, so, so that that's yes. how far we, we've come in that amount of time. I mean, literally, I could not be married to my wife if it was 60 years ago, yes. not legally. And and, I, and, 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 and if 60 it, years ago, if hard, I were right? standing right where I'm standing right now, I would be liable for arrest. <laughs> right. So yeah. and, and and if Shizuka and, were to go to America, uh, you know, 60 yeah. years ago, they probably would have put her in one of those camps in Utah. So she'd be actually up where you are. She would. I could go visit her. But it's it's. I think logically hard for people to realize that right now we have a situation that's very similar. Mm-hmm. So 60 years ago, people were just as afraid of the Japanese as they are right now afraid of people from Syria. 
and when you think about the logic on that, yeah. or they were just afraid of the Jews, like it was um, Anne Frank attempted to get a visa into the States and was denied. And if you go back and read uh, New York Times articles, there's a lot of articles, like very anti-Semitic views inside of the United States because they were worried about the Jews coming and invading the United States. And right now, the, like the sheer thought of us not taking in every single Jewish citizen in Europe that was at risk is a little bit embarrassing and painful and like just incomprehensible. I I do really wonder what we're going to look back, you know, it's going to be 30 years from now and we're going to look back to this period right now. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who are, the thing is, I, you know, I I hope we don't get anywhere near that bad, but I think there are going to be, it's going to be very difficult in 30 years to find somebody who put his hand up and say, yeah, I was for all that. You know, this gonna, those people are going to get real quiet in about 30 years, I think. But I don't want to get too political. Uh, we're, we're keeping it's this. It's okay. Um, you know. In any case. They'll raise their hand and they'll say, I kept out <laughs> I kept out Anne Frank, right? Yeah. Who, who really wants to admit that they were that person? But Right now, it's now it's pretty clear cut. It's easy. Like, why did we do that? Why did they do that? Right. And it's a, a removal of responsibility from humans as in something that can't be repeated because it's so obviously wrong. You know, back then people did things different, like back then. But, but and I'll say this is one of the things now. I love the most about working in the game industry is it is such an international industry. And I've had such an amazing opportunity to meet people from all around the world. You know, our studio alone has people from the Philippines and Indonesia and all these other countries. And, and you do learn over time that, you know, it's not really anybody's fault where they were born, you know, and, and maybe you don't maybe you don't like the government of country X or you don't like what this political party did. But but the people in that country usually had very little to do with that decision making process. And you and you find if you yeah. just actually talk to the individuals in those countries, they they tend to be pretty decent folks wherever you go, whether you're in Iran yeah. or Syria or wherever. And it and it's. It's sad to me when you hear these these kind of conversations where people say, oh, the North Koreans are doing this or the Taiwanese or the Chinese or the whatever. And you say, well, you know, yeah. the, and it's, it's easy to get infected with a, yeah. um, with the they call them mimes, like infectious mimes mm-hmm. with thoughts. Right. So if you think about the things that we um, like our brains get infected with ideas in some ways and some ideas, once they're in your brain, they, they form um, like they calcify in some ways, like the neurons, right? And so you might have a situation where somebody has something that they were infected with when they were young. Their wiring gets a little different because that's that's how it is. They believe something. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I had a, I had a fascinating conversation with my father change. this summer, um, and it, sometimes it changes, but it takes it takes work. You know, my father grew up in in Virginia in the 1950s. And well, Virginia in the 1950s, if if you grew up in that environment, uh, black people were not fully human. That was that was the belief of white people in Virginia in the 1950s. And my father grew up in that environment, and he grew up in a world where black people weren't allowed to drink from the same fountain, go to the same bathroom. There was a whole separate beach in Virginia Beach that you know, if you were black, you had to go to this separate beach because they couldn't go to the white people beach. And that was the environment that my father grew up in, and he had to somewhere between the 1950s and now uh, adapt himself to a world where a black person could be the president of the country. And and it's to, to think of what that journey from this person is not human enough to 
you know, go to the same bathroom as me to this person can be the ruler of my country. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a long walk, right? And, and, you know, to my father's credit, I think he's made that walk. I think he's made those adjustments. But like you say, it's, uh, people grow up with a lot of shit in their heads and they gotta, mm-hmm. they gotta sort their way through it. On that note, we are at an hour for this uh, interview, which is a little over where I want to go. But it was fascinating stuff, so I wanted to keep going. I, I ask everybody the same question at the end of these interviews, which is, you know, after all of this and if, you know, those people who made it this far, if there if there's one sort of thing that they're supposed to sort of take away of, you know, wow, I listened to this interview with Jessica Tam. She had all this stuff to say. Well, what would you like them to remember? What would you like to be the, the thing that Jessica Tams tells people out in the world on this podcast? What would that thing be? I think that we need to be nicer to each other. I can't argue with that. That's it. That's it. And I think about it even with my kids, right? Like what's the most important thing for my kids? Like to be nice to each other. To not think of somebody as lesser just because of something. Because you never know where somebody comes from. Like that mean kid at school, you know, his dad could be beating him every night. Yeah, you don't know. Yeah. You don't know, right? And all they need is somebody to help them through it so you know and I came from a you know I grew up in Utah I won't go into there but you know I came from a very different world than many people did who grew up on the coasts yeah you know in the states and um you know even in my town the you know speaking of your marriage uh that was that wasn't really legal here in Utah until 1979 yeah because Black people and white people couldn't get married. And so when you think about the people who are around as adults, like even my parents, um, you know, my my younger brother was born in 1979. And so they were fully functioning adults. You know, they had been married and had kids. And they witnessed that change in our society. And to think that, you know, that we shouldn't be nice to somebody because they are different is... I think I, I think it, it, it's it Shelby sounds so simple, but if you, if you think about so much that's going on in the world and so many debates that we have, if you just simplified it down to, yeah, are you being nice to that guy? Are, are you know that person who believes differently than you, or you know that person who you know has a different sexuality or, or different gender or different race or whatever? Are you are you being nice to that guy? Like if you if you yeah. simplified it down to that, you would actually get to the root of most of these problems. So yeah, I can't argue with that at all. So on that note, um, everybody, be nice to each other. This has been a, a fantabulous talk. Thank you so much for your time, Jessica. You too. Thanks for having me. And that's it for the show today. It was great for Jessica to come. We've got some more great interviews coming up in the series. I hope you guys tune in for that. But for today, that's it for the show. Here's a little bit of music, and we are gone. <laughs>